has been in serving the Lord in some dimension or the other. Seen a lot of things, good, bad, and ugly. Um, and I love the church. I love the local church, the local assembly. I think it's just one of the most incredible things that the Lord has, that he will so grace a community with a church where people can come and be introduced to eternity. I'm talking about a life change that lasts forever. I pray that you never get so comfortable that you take that for granted. Amen. Tremendous worship that we had. It's, it's, it's not common, you guys. We are blessed more than sometimes we realize. Amen. I pray that you might esteem that the Lord would love you and I so much that we could be part of, part of the church family and united with the, with the church of the Lord worldwide. Um, I, I spoke to the worship team for a little bit of the, anybody that was kind of involved in worship. And really part of what we talked about on, uh, yesterday in our little workshop time was um, had to do with just making sure that everything when it comes to worship is centered on who God is. Amen. Uh, it's centered on him. It's built around him. I believe that the Lord is looking for, for worshipers. And I, I want to make a, uh, you know, the statements that I made concerning that because they have a bearing on what I'm going to cover just in, in the next few minutes. Um, everything that the Lord wants to manifest through you and I is found in him, not in us. Everything that the Lord wants people to see concerning you and me is not found in us, it's found in God. So when the Lord began this whole project, he began by saying, let us make men out of our image and according to our likeness. That means that we are the original material and there shall be a copy of that. It was the wisdom of God to hide men's greatness in God. In fact, you see, the devil knew this and that's why when he targeted our original parents in the book of Genesis chapter 1, notice that the devil never challenged Adam face to face to open combat. Notice that even when he approached Eve, his posture was not combative. Because as long as them two were close to the Lord, he couldn't touch them. So what the devil went for instead is the connection between them and God. That if somewhere, somehow, I can disconnect them from him, it is the only chance I have to bind them. So the thing that the enemy focused on was to hurt our relationship with God. It's been the same trick since then. God does not mind, or rather the devil does not mind how many times you come to church. As long as you don't get too close to God to be dangerous. As long as you don't become too familiar with heavenly things that heaven visits your house. Because that will change your neighborhood. That will change your co-workers. So sometimes the devil is okay with the church doing the, doing the little church thing as long as you just don't come close enough to God to be dangerous. Because anybody that ever came that close, the reason we preach about them today is in the days of their lives, they left such an imprint of God on the planet, but they came close enough. For, 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 for Abraham, for, no, not Abraham. Let me, let, let me start with Moses. Let me go to Abraham. Moses is out there as an 80-year-old looking after sheep. So if you were to look at what he had accomplished in life up until that point, it doesn't appear to be a whole lot. From age 1 to 40, he was in Egypt working under the Egyptian system. From 40 to 80, he was a shepherd looking after someone else's sheep. 
So if you look at the sum total of his life, it really would, would point toward a life wasted. So I thought you were smarter than this. 40 years looking after sheep, that's the most you've done. But watch this. The Lord was there the whole time, right? God did not first show up on the pages of history the day he appeared to Moses. He was always there. But up until then, Moses did not know how to approach God. So what does the Lord do? The Lord sets a bush on fire, Exodus chapter 3. Moses observes this phenomenon, draws closer, but he came close enough for that to be dangerous. He came way too close. Why? Because he came close enough to hear God give him his life assignment. The reason you were born, the reason you've been isolated for 40 years, the reason why you were raised in a pagan nation that knows nothing about who I am is because I want to send you back right there to that nation and go and set my people free. One day he came too close. He came close enough to be dangerous. Danger to who? To Pharaoh. Pharaoh was comfortable. The system of the pharaohs had existed dynasty after dynasty. So they knew how to run stuff. But one day a man got too close to God. And the Lord assigned him to go and change Egypt. And so this old man walks up to Egypt, pushing 80-something years old. He doesn't have a tank or an army. He has no military, no air force. He has a stick and a word from God. Hey, I've just come to announce to you. The Lord of the Hebrews says, let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness. This is the reason why, like I said, the devil is afraid of you getting too close. You become a little too dangerous. From a distance, yeah, you can, yeah, from a distance. You come close enough to hear what the Father is saying. You might be like Saul of Tarsus, killing Christians one day and then interning at Cornerstone after that. Why? You came close. What did the Lord do? Showed up to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and came within a type of proximity that you don't enter into that space and live unchanged. So, so, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus, who are you persecuting? You know what he said next? What do you want me to do, Lord? Why? I came close enough to remain the same. Something's happening in me. And the Lord then says, whatever remains of your life is going to be a non-stop race toward the finish line. You shall accomplish great things. Why? You came too close to not be dangerous. If Satan knew anything, he would have tried his very best to make sure that Saul of Tarsus never gets that close to God. Let him stay religious. Let him stay a good Pharisee. Don't let him come too close to the presence of the Lord. Because then you might just have an apostle that will write three quarters of the New Testament. Are we okay? I believe the Lord is, is welcoming us to come closer. Close enough to be dangerous. Close enough to be... I, I, when I was in Bible college, I've shared this guy's testimony. I had a, I had a, a friend who was my dorm mate that came close enough to be dangerous. Little Korean kid called Brent Arancio. He had been adopted by Italian parents, a Japanese kid adopted by Italian parents. You can just imagine the, what was going on with this kid, you know. And so Brent was the quietest and most shy kid in our school, you know, in Bible college. Like really shy. If you say hi, Brent, he whispered, hey, hey, how are you? Very timid. Out of the blue, Brent goes to the dean of students and says, ma'am, can I please speak at chapel on Thursday? Everybody was shocked. Brent? Yeah. What do you want? I want to bring the word in Bible school chapel. So the dean of students said, not this week or next week, but I'll give you three weeks. In three weeks, prepare something. 
keep it short and sweet, 30 minutes or so, 35 minutes. And then every time I walked into the dorm room for three weeks, that boy had his nose in the carpet, Pastor Femi, praying. For three weeks, I saw what that boy did. He was fasting, he was praying, he was on his face before the Lord. When people were hanging out, going to play ball, the kid for three weeks in the lead up to that had his face in the carpet. I, was, I felt like a big brother to him. So I wanted to make sure he was going to be okay. So I said, bro, what are you preparing to share on Thursday? Because I was a worship leader in Bible college. And he says, I don't know yet, but I'll, I'll let you know when I do. I said, listen, if you need some help, I can sit down with you. We can hash out some ideas. He says, no, don't worry about Phyllis. I got it. Okay, okay. As the day was coming closer, I got a little nervous again. Because sometimes people that don't teach, that don't usually teach, they think that 30 minutes is plenty of time to get stuff done or it's too little time. But if you don't, if you don't have enough material, enough substance, you're done in five minutes. Most of the things you have to say, you can say in three and a half minutes. So I'm worried that this boy is not going to be able to fill 35 minutes. So I keep asking Brent, my bro, what? He says, I'm going to teach on faith. What are you going to say about faith? Well, you know, you know, you need faith. So I just decided, let me leave him alone. But I was nervous because I was leading worship. I decided I was going to sing a few more songs so that the time, it was all out of looking out for my brother. Really, that's all it was. He was already so damaged with the way people responded to him. I didn't want him to, to get a kick in the belly if he did not perform as well as he thought he would. I thought he would crush him if he did that. Well, the day that the Thursday came in, I was sitting right at the last, like the last row, um, right in the aisle. And I'm thinking this, is gonna, this kid is going to bomb, and I'm a little afraid, so I'm praying for him. And I have my head down like this, just praying, Father, please help him. Please help him. Please help him. And then here's what I felt, right? I felt someone walk by me and do this. And then when I looked up to see who it was, there was nobody there. And I felt the atmosphere begin to change. My hair is standing on end. I know God has just walked in. The Lord is in this building right now. Any minister that is worth their salt knows that when the Lord comes into the building. You become even afraid to speak. You don't want to, to, to mess what's going on. I felt heaven in the building. Brent is a tiny little guy like this. He's got a Bible that's almost half his size. He comes up to the pulpit. And then he goes, um, I, I'm, I'm going to speak about faith today. He says, um, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We need faith. I'm like, hey, okay, good start. And then I looked and I saw that he had run out of material. So he kept repeating himself. So we have to have faith. So we need faith. We have to have faith. This is five minutes deep. He's supposed to have 35 to 40 minutes. But I already sense the Lord is in the room. So Brent just cannot speak anymore because he kept repeating himself. So he says, I'll pray for anybody that needs prayer. First girl that got up was a young lady called Jeanette Roberts. She got up and walked casually toward this boy. My brother, she came about this close and it looked like somebody picked her up and threw her back. All I'm doing, if you, have you ever seen a person walk this way and then go that way. Jeanette hit the ground, burst out in tongues, right? Brent doesn't know what's going on, but he's just looking, what, what do I do now? The next person comes, he walks toward them, boom, they go down the power of God, boom. He begins to clear row by row by row, the whole, like dominoes. The teachers, the professors on the floor crying. I'm at the back, weeping before God. 
I was like, Lord, I was so arrogant to think I know how to do this. This young boy had done something. He came close enough to be dangerous. He hung out with heaven for three weeks, asking heaven to visit a 35-minute presentation. And heaven showed up. So I'm saying this. The devil is okay with you being far enough to be religious. He's not okay with you being close enough to be dangerous. Those that come close enough are like David. They end up becoming giant killers. They end up becoming some of the best kings this world has ever had. Those that come close enough are like Joseph. They become kings in a foreign land and sing the Lord's song in a strange land. Those that come close enough. Are we okay? So, when we're talking about worship, I think that's how I started that part, right? I was laying down in front of what we talked about. We talked about worship. Worship is an invitation for people to come close. It's an invitation for the Lord to be close enough for you to behold him. I'm talking about with your spirit, you can, you can behold him. It's close enough to be changed by him. You come close enough, things begin to move and change, guys. Things begin to move and change. Obedience begins to be born out of a person who's kind of stubborn and like to have their own way. You begin to find a breaking on the inside where it's okay to obey. The group I was sharing with this morning, I said, some of the best assignments I've ever done, I'm talking about when the fire of God fell, is an assignment God knows from my core I didn't want to do it. I begged, I don't want to do this, Father. I don't want to, I don't feel like, why why doesn't someone else do it? I'm tired. And then last minute I just said, but I love you, so I'm just going to do it because I love you. Stood in that space only to find out that that place of breaking, you see, that breaking of not my will but thine, that doesn't happen far away. I was closer than I thought I was. That's why the fight was there. But it was close enough to say, not what I want, Father. I'll do it because you want it. That means that something dies in me. My own, have things my own way. Have it according to my schedule. I lay that down. When you lay that down, something else happens. That's why I'm saying, come close enough to be dangerous. Approach the Lord a little close enough so that whatever is found in you is found in you. Amen? That was for free. That was from yesterday. My little tidbit for what we have for, for today is a built, built on the continuation of that. Now that the Lord has touched and he has, he has begun to do certain things in you, Releasing a gift upon you, that's God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to him. And I say that again. Receiving some kind of gifting or maybe some kind of a talent or ability from God is his gift to you and I. What we do with that is our gift to him. In the book of Matthew, chapter 25, you can turn there. Very familiar portion of scripture. But it, is, it bears repeating. I'll go to verse 14 and I'll plow right ahead. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. 
So the, this is a teaching about the way the kingdom is constituted. It's a kingdom dynamic. He says, if you want to understand what the kingdom of God is like, it's like a man that goes on a long journey and apportions his substance or his wealth to his servants. Are we good? Let's read on. He says, and to one he gave five talents. Now, talent is a measure of, it's a weight, it's a weight measure of gold. So maybe let's just say, I, I don't know, 25 pounds of gold. He says, and then to another, two, and then to another one. Each according to what? Their divine ability. Meaning each according to, there's a measure of aptitude that the Lord has already given. So the one that got five, the Lord had already observed that he can handle five. The one that got two, the Lord had made an observation that he can handle two. The one that got one, the Lord had also observed that he can handle one. So the long and short is that each one was differently capable. The one with one was, the Lord did not require for him to get five. He just had to maximize the one he had. The one with two did not have to get 16. He just had to, what you do with what he has given you is your gift back to him. What's crazy about this is that the master goes, the Bible says, on a long journey. It means that he was gone a long time. He didn't leave any set of instructions. He just left. First servant decided, you know what? What the master gave to me was his gift to me. What I'm able to give back to him is going to be my gift to him. I'm going to get to work with what I have. I'm not going to sit there and wish that I had what my sister over there had or what my brother over there. I'm not going to wish I had what I do have the little that I have right now. My only responsibility is what I do with this little thing that is mine. So he went, the Bible says he traded it, doubled it. The one with two traded it, doubled it. Now notice, this is a teaching about the kingdom. It's causing us to, the Lord wants us to understand the way heaven and heavenly things work. The master then comes back. First servant says, hey, master, welcome back, man. Good to see you, sir. He says, yeah. He says, remember you gave me five talents. Yeah, that was your gift to me. Five measures of your wealth. He says, master, I went to the marketplace. I doubled it. So he says, what I gave to you was my gift to you. What you're giving back to me is your gift to me. Only to find out that, son, that's not the most I was preparing you to have. That's actually the least. So I gave you a little because I desired for you to rule much. But I had to find out what you were going to do with the little. The test was not the five. It was, can I trust something small in your hand and you will invest the cream of your wisdom, your heart, your love, your prayer to multiply that as a gift back to me. The king was looking for servants who could rule much. The only way he could identify them was to trust them with little and then to observe how well they took care of it. Second servant says, I got two. He says, yeah, I was able to double this and I got four now. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master for you're faithful in little, but now I'm going to make you ruler over much. You've passed the test of stewardship. Arise to your calling. The one guy that had won 
He came to the master. He says, well, you know what, yeah, you know, I know the kind of person you are. Yeah, you reap where you haven't sowed and everything like that. I was not about to lose your stuff, so I hid it. But anyway, here's what is yours. How does the master respond? My giving you that one was my gift to you. Your doing nothing to it is not a gift to me. Because there was inflation even in Bible times. Joe Biden didn't invent, invent inflation. Amen. Or, or power. He says, son, if you had put it to the bankers, if you had at least tried to upgrade the quality of what I gave you, I could have earned the 2.5% that Bank of America offers, or is it 1.5? But because you hid it, it depreciated in value. And then he says, what? Well, you wicked and lazy servant. He says, take that one from this guy. Give it to the guy with five. Which is kind of heartbreaking. For to him that has more will be given. And to him that has not, meaning you have not multiplied what was given to you, even the little that he has will be taken away. And he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It was a parable about the kingdom. Therefore, what does this have to do with anything? I believe that our sojourn on earth, right here, is there certain things that heaven has entrusted upon us. And eternity is forever, my friends. You know that, right? Eternity is forever. We are given this little window in, in time to make an investment that will have a bearing on eternity. We are not prepared for eternity in eternity. No, we are given this surgeon on this earth. These few years, man. In those few years, the Lord deposits a little bit of treasure in our stewardship. Not ownership, stewardship. It's his stuff. And then just watch this. What is my son going to do with this? What is my daughter going to do with this? And those that are wise amongst us who just say, Father, I don't need much. I really don't need to have the special gift. I just do need that this little gift that you've given me must rise to its highest expression. Help me be the best I can be in that which you have given me to do. Why? Because you giving me that, that's your gift to me. But me giving you the multiplied version is an act of worship for me. That's my gift to my God. Are we okay? This is the ambition of heaven. This is the way the things of God are constructed. Look at Jesus. What does the Lord do? The Lord says, I want many sons. So what does he do? He gives one son as a seed with what? Will you multiply? So Jesus in the book of, is it John 11 or John 12? He's hanging out and some Greeks come and they say, we would love to see Jesus. These were Gentiles. As soon as Jesus, I think it's 11, as soon as Jesus heard that the Greeks were looking for him, he knew, I cannot remain one. I must be many, meaning I must multiply. So then he says this, I, 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 I have got to give my life. Why? Because unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. He says, so many of them want what I have right now. I need to multiply myself in as many of them as I can. So even Jesus knew that the gift of life he was given had to be multiplied, not for his own sake, but for the sake of you and I, that today, 2,000 years later, we can speak and people can hear the Lord from what it is that we say. Because again, 
the stewardship that he had with the life he was given is the reason why he has children on every continent. I think the last time I checked, the Christian population is what? Is it 2.8 or 3.2 billion with a B? I don't know what the Lord has placed within your stewardship. I, I, I honestly don't know. I do know this though. It matters to him what you're doing with it. It matters to him what you're doing with this. Not losing it is not enough. So I guess we're looking for people that say that the seed form of what you've, you've called me to do, Father, I want you so magnified in this area. And in order for that to happen, I cannot be too far from you. So I get close enough. So that this little light of mine may shine ever so brighter. Why? I love my God enough. I want him to shine. I want to bring him glory. So the recognition of little gifts, man, little. There are some people that are exhorters. You know what an exhorter is? Have you ever been around somebody who just encourages you? I think for me, Santosh is like that. Let me tell you about Santosh. Um, and, and, and I'm just going to say whether or not I'm going to embarrass Hannah in the process. Let me tell you about Santosh. If you ever talk to him, here's what he'll say. If he shows you somebody, he'll tell you at least three or four good things about that person. He'll tell you, oh, and there are companies that say, this major breakthrough, this major. I don't know. He's always got information of some things that people are good at, things that they excel at. It's called exhortation. What is that? Is that sometimes you just, you begin to have a favorable view of people if you listen to him talk in that way because he's always looking for that which is good in others. I've found that in you. So that gift, my brother, what you with that gift is what's happening in Dewdrops of Manor now. It's stewardship of a gift that says, Father, not just me and my house enjoying this, as many as can give it. And so now it's beginning to touch what you do with what God has given you is important. Are we okay? The greatest joy you'll ever have, my brother, like the greatest joy, the greatest joy, when that which the Lord has, has constructed, you're, you're, you're shaped a certain way, you see life a certain way, when you now just put that back in the Lord and say, Father, how can I be of the greatest influence with this outlook? I want to glorify you in people's lives. Nobody comes into contact with me and and walks away without not having received something of value. Give me something of value to say to him. That's managing and stewarding a gift. Then you just don't know who you're going to speak to. You're going to speak to somebody, and then it will radically change their life because you were just encouraging to a person who was really broken. And what they accomplish in their life might be multiplied times what you might do. But if you had not done that, they would not have been there. What God has given you is his gift to you. What you give back to him is going to be your gift to him. Ah. When you look at David, David says in Psalm 18, he says, by my God I can run through a troop, by my God I can leap over a wall, by my, my God I can bend a bow of bronze. He says what? Blessed is the Lord my rock, Psalm 144, who teaches my hands to war, my fingers to do battle. So David says, the results in my life are God-given. God is the one that gives me the results. The skill part of it is my stewardship over the gift. Skill 
is not naturally given. It's developed. Okay? That's what makes it skill. If you see a great piano player, it's not because they just woke up one day and began to play. It's hours of developing, stewarding a gift. So for David, okay, I'm going to be a shepherd, right? How can I be the best that I can? I have to be able to handle animals at a distance because if I come too close, they might kill me. If they get the one of the so I have to be able to hit them from a distance. So he says, Father, I'm going to steward a gift, which is a sling. I'm just going to steward that gift. And what? It's not much. There are many people that can do more than me. But I'm going to do the best I can with the little gift that I do have. So David worked on a skill. When Saul was looking for a musician, what did they ask? Find a skillful musician. What's the difference between a skillful one and one? Stewardship of a gift. Some people are naturally gifted musicians. Most of them are way outperformed by those that were not as naturally gifted, but that put in the time to be the best they can be in the gift that they were given. What are you doing with the gift that God gave you? Cornerstone. This African boy is about to be done. It's going to be 12 soon. Through those doors, Boston. But I do have a question for you before I leave. How are you stewarding the gift that the Lord has given you? It's supposed to be your greatest adventure with God. Working on your gift together with him. You young preachers, after you preach, going back and saying, Father, is there anything I could have done differently? and then sitting silently in the presence of the Lord, then you begin to hear the Holy Spirit saying, you should have taken an altar call and laid hands on my people. You rushed them out too quickly. And you say, Father, next time, please help me to remember that. Spirit of God, what should I have done? That example that you gave me, that one fell to the ground. You should have picked up another rock and thrown it at them again. Lord, what should I do? That message you just preached? Cut away this too much fat. Narrow it. Go straight to your point. What is happening? I just want to manage well the gift that God has given, right? Why? Because him giving me that gift is his gift to me. Me stewarding that gift well. That's my act of worship. You know what's so crazy? In the world of sports, that some of the most gifted athletes, like Jordan back in the day, also happened to be the hardest working. So not only was he already sort of kind of better than them, than everybody else, then he outworked them on top of that. Why? Stewarding a gift. I'm, I'm not brilliant enough to be good at 10 things. I do have the one thing that I know that the Lord has, he has breathed on this one. I will steward it well. If it's children's ministry, I am studying books on child development. I'm studying books of what the Bible says concerning this. What? I will sharpen my knife. I will prepare as best I can, then come close enough to the Lord for him to use whatever we have been working on. If you're a musician, how you push yourself to the next level of the execution in your craft is your act of worship to the Lord. Because you recognize the gift given. And you say, Father, I'm not going to be sloppy with this. I will steward it well for you. So you're out there singing scales when people already think you're a great singer. You don't need, but you're practicing. Why? 
What you gave me is your gift to me. What I do with it, Father, that's my gift to you. Maybe you have influence among youth. Find out what it takes to be a dynamic leader, not of a youth group, but a youth movement. Set the bar at that level. They just say, Father, when I speak, these young people do listen. But I want you to damage anything in them that is unlike you. No, I don't want them just to be influenced. I want them to be radically transformed. What do I do with this gift to get that father? Now the Lord takes you to school. It's better than seminary, brother. It's the school of the spirit. It begins to teach you, you have to be able to identify a gift. Don't think you know gifted kids, because you don't. Because you will look at them, and they will not look gifted. And right there will be a preacher of preachers. You need another level of insight to steward your gift. So you say, Father, open my eyes. If you don't show me, I don't know. How can I point a young person in the right direction if I can't see? Show me something. Testimony. I was in Columbus, Ohio. And a young man approached me, six foot four white boy. Approached me and says, Felix, um, he says, man, I don't know why, but I feel led to talk to you. I said, okay, what is it? He says, um, I'm trying to get in the NFL. I was at Capital University. And I was a wide receiver there. And I'm trying to get into the NFL, but that's not what I really want to do. So I said, okay, listen. Meet me at, at Starbucks, I think, like the next day. So I went before the Lord and said, Father, how can I help you? I, I don't know. I don't know what he wants. I don't know how, what people should do with their lives. That's not my domain. Kid wasn't saved, by the way. Just a secular kid that came looking for help. As I'm on my knees, my brother, I thought the Lord whispered this. Ask him what else he's good at that has got nothing to do with football. That's the only thing I heard the Lord say. Ask him what else he is good at. That has got nothing to do with football. So we sit down for coffee, and he just says, Yeah, you know, I, I got injured. I was a was all-American athlete, decathlon champion. And he says that I got injured though in my in, in my final years, so I didn't get as much playing time. And because I went to Capital University, even though I had the NCAA record for 475 receiving yards in a single game, I wasn't scouted because the university was tiny. Then I said, Okay, wonderful about football, but you know, it's only a small percentage of people that make it in the NFL, right? He says, yeah. I said, what else are you good at that has got nothing to do with football? He stopped and he looked at me. Then his face ended up. He says, you know, it's odd that you ask that. He says, I'm on this new platform called LinkedIn. I said, okay. Now you know how long ago that was, right? I said, what is, he says, I have been absorbed by this platform. I spend about six hours a day in there. I said, how many links do you have at that time? He said, I got 14,000. This is way back when, when the average person had like 50. This young man had 14,000. I said, how in the world did you get that? He says, because I was absorbed by the platform, I found out a way, not only to have these links, but to have them clustered by region. So those 14,000, I can make one announcement that I'm coming into the city and I can assemble 1,000 people. I said, I'm going to tell you exactly how you want to make your first million. He says, how? I said, it's normal in the NFL. Here's what I want you to do. I want, this is the Lord now speaking. I know I'm talking to a secular kid. Why? Because before going to, if you're going to ask me for advice, I, I have to hear from God. Because me, I got nothing to say. Not smart enough. I said, I'll tell you how you want to make your first million. I want you to go and develop that system on LinkedIn that you developed. I want you to write a book. Nobody knows you. You won't get published. So self-publish that book. And then I want you to begin to train people on that method. He wasn't a church kid. He was a kid in the world. 
there was a kid in my church at the same time that came up to me with the same question. Pastor Felix, you know, what should I do? And then I went before the Lord. The Lord gave me a plan for him. His name is Ryan, Ryan Sinsusi. Very gifted white kid. Very, very, very gifted. I said, Ryan, do this. Ryan says, okay, Pastor, I'll pray about it. And that's the last I heard about that for about three years. About four years, actually. Six months from talking to that other kid, I get a phone call. Hey, Felix, can you come to Columbus, Ohio? I'm like, for what? He says, for my book signing. Like, what book? He says, well, the book you told me to write. What is it called? It's called linked working. Really? I said, don't even worry about it. I'll come on my own dime. I flew to Columbus at my own expense. I walked into a room where he was doing his book signing. There must have been about 1,500 people there. I said, how did you assemble 1,500 people in, in Cowtown, in the, in the cornfields? He says, I told you how I have them clustered, right? He says, I can do this in every major state and city. His name is Lewis House. He is, I think, one of the top 10, if not top 5, podcasts on the planet. He has interviewed just about any and everybody. And he began a thing called the School of Greatness, where he assembles a few thousand people in Columbus, Ohio, at top building. They paid thousands of dollars to be there. He's one of the greatest exhorters that I see. And he, went, he came into the faith through the Matt Chandler's, not through my route. My route was what? A stewardship of a little gift that say, if you're going to ask me something, I'm going to talk to the one that might know. And this boy executed on a simple plan of stewarding a gift. How much is Lewis House worth now? Multiplied millions. To be in his, what is called his inner circle, meaning part of, part of his uh, group of individuals, I think you need a certain net worth and you need to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to be part of that inner circle. What am I talking about here? I'm not just saying this. I'm saying stewarding a gift, my friends, is this. Is that what God has given us is his gift to us. What we do with it is our gift to him. The greatest act of worship is not how loud I sing. The greatest act of worship has got to do with the quality of stewardship I have exercised on the little gift I was given. This little light of mine I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Hide it under a bush. Oh, no. I'm going to make it shine. Let it shine. Don't let it out. I'm going to let it shine. I grew up singing those songs not knowing that my Sunday school teachers were teaching me the value of stewarding a little light. And that the entire kingdom of my God is built on that simple concept. You are not judged on how you compare to other people. You are judged with who you were when you first got your gift and who you have become since you've had it. I'm done. So, but before I go, I do want to say, if there's any of us that are here right now, I, I don't know what the Lord has asked you to do. I do know that you are going to have to step before him and give an account of that. I'm hoping that while we are here on this earth, you've been making an investment in a realm we shall spend the rest of our existence in. Eternity is forever. Our little dress rehearsal on this planet 
has got to do with stewarding a gift in a way that gives us dominion in eternity. You have been faithful with little. I'll make you ruler over much. Shall we all stand, please? you're a teacher, please teach well. Please. Okay. Don't let it be like a root canal. Teach well. If you're, if you're a dentist, do root canals well. But if you're a teacher, don't do root canals. Just teach well. So what does that mean? It means I go to God and say, Father, I need you to speak through me. I can't do this. I'm an African boy. It's a second language for me. For me to be skillful at this, I need your help, Father. Please help me. Please help me. Please help me. Father, I'm going to be teaching those kids today. I don't know the future president of the United States might be in my, in my Sunday school class today. I need to be able to prepare. And I don't know how to do it. Help me. Help me, Father. Help me. Father, this is what is giving me trouble. I don't know what to tell their parents. I remember this young girl called Christine. Problem child. Real problem child. Not wannabe, Malayali problem. I'm talking real, real problem child. Lord, what do I do? So the Lord saying, give us something to do at youth group. Yeah, she's bored. Everybody knows she's rebellious, so nobody trusts her with any assignment. You need to give her something. I didn't know what to do at that time. I've given this testimony. I went into the church and I kicked the chairs everywhere. I just turned the church upside down. Kicked chairs everywhere. Just, and then I called her mom, Beverly. I said, Beverly, I said, I said, put Chris on the phone. Chris is Pastor Felix. Hey, Pastor Felix, what's up? I said, I need you to come to church early today. Why? I need your help. Okay. Mom, can you drive me? Yeah, I don't want to be there. She comes in, she sees the church is in commotion. What happened? Don't ask. What? Help me set the chairs up. That was the key. All those years of rebellion. That was the key. Setting up chairs. She set those chairs up nicely. And I said, okay, I'll let you know if I need some more help. So what do I do the next week? Same thing. The tearing up part of the church was fun, by the way, just so you know. So I was getting a little bit of a kick. It was just, it was really nice. Thank God, the, no board members were there. No furniture was destroyed in the process. But the whole point is that she came, what happened, Mr. Felix? I said, don't ask, just help me. In the third week, I told her, listen, after you set up the chairs, I just need you to pray over each one of them so that by the time the other kids show up, the anointing of God is already in that seat. So Chris and I, we used to come an hour before service, lay hands on all the seats, every single one. After that, I gave her five names and picked up other kids in my youth group as well. I said, these are members of our youth group. Here's what I ask you. Every Wednesday, before you come out here, I want you between Monday and Wednesday to have a Called them at least once, and all I need you to say is this: Hey guys, um, are you guys doing okay? Is there anything I can pray about? Oh, my mom is not feeling well. Okay, I'll pray for your mom. And also, you, you guys know we got youth group on Wednesday, right? Yeah. Are you coming? Um, no, I might not have a ride. Oh, don't worry, I'll talk to Pastor and we'll arrange a ride for you. That's what Chris had to do. Every time that my my, my youth did that, the church was packed. What is that? 
activate more people to steward their little flame of fire, their little light. See, that was Elijah's problem. I think I tried to share this with you yesterday. Elijah was fire, one person. He was all the fire. I need to build the altar of the Lord. The apostate was doing it. Oh. Twelve rocks. Sir, why are you doing that? No, because I'm the man of God. Nah, nah. That is a very, very weird leadership structure you've got. You are 80-something years old. Why are you picking up rocks like that? Where is the young man that you pick up the rocks from? So what does the Lord do? He allows Elijah to fail completely on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was where the victory was failed because it was the most powerful event and it lived zero result except the threat for his life to be killed. All that theatrics to end up running for your life. So that the Lord says what? He says, son, you have to invest in others, man. Yeah. There's Elisha that needs to be raised. There's Jehu that needs to be anointed to be king. There's Helalon, whatever, that needs to be king of Syria. There are the sons of prophet that we need to have prophetic schools in Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, and Jordan. You've got work to do, but in what? It's not just about you steward in your light, Elijah. What about the light of those around you? Give Elisha a shot. Give him a chance, and you perform twice as many miracles as you have. Great, but there's greater that can happen to you. By what? Stewarding your gift and what? And then helping others do steward theirs as well. Lift your hands before the Lord. I'm going to pray and go. Lift those hands high if you can, please. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, I just thank you for your people. And my God, I'm asking. I don't care how small the gifting. I don't care how little the flame and the fire. I pray that your people will shine. They will, they will protect that little anointing. They will protect it, but then give it room to grow. They will steward their gift for the glory of their father. Father, I pray that you raise up tremendous anointed teachers of the word of God, anointed preachers of the word of God, anointed worshipers, Father, anointed deacons and ushers and anointed, you know, treasury people, anointed building team, Father. Let each one steward their gift to its maximum for the glory of our God and our King. Yes, you God bless you. Thank you.